Welcome to the global edition of our Nate Group Investments Quarterly Highlights, where we profile some of the interesting take-outs from our recent fund manager workshops with our global best-of-breed managers. To hear the full fund manager presentations or for more information on our funds, visit netgroupinvestments.coza and click on to learn more about our product range. In this episode, we discuss the fundamental factors driving real estate values in a rising inflationary environment, the vulnerability of risk asset prices with historically low real rates, and how China's central bank's decision to cut rates shows signs of a supportive macro environment for Chinese stocks. We also talked to a seasoned portfolio manager about his thoughts on the rising popularity of investments in the metaverse before we discuss an interesting banking stock from a behavioral finance perspective. What are the fundamental factors driving real estate valuations, given a backdrop of rising inflation and interest rates? Julian Campbell talks through rental demand, real estate supply, and the broader financial health of REIT balance sheets to answer this question. Now let's talk through some of the dynamics which will drive the relative returns of real estate in this environment. Uh, so often when we're moving through periods of, of higher inflation, the concern around bond yields, REITs are often tagged uh, as a bond proxy. But what really drives the relative return for REITs is the ability to drive cash flow and that rests on pricing power. So the core we're looking for is a good balance of tenant demand, moderate supply and finance with appropriate capital structures. So broadly, tenant demand is improving as we learn to live better with COVID. Uh, and also you've got those big secular demand drivers that we've touched on. If you look at the bottom left chart there, uh, the property sectors where we're seeing the strongest rent growth, uh, you know, in line or above inflation uh, is residential property, self-storage, healthcare, industrial, uh, with some of the other property sectors uh, a little bit below that level after a very strong 21. We're seeing vacancy rates generally reduce, uh, so that sets the sector up well uh, for earnings growth in 2022. Moving to the supply side, um, in aggregate the supply picture for real estate is fairly moderate. The experience of COVID has really delayed the delivery of new buildings through a mix of supply chain issues, labour, cost increases um, and the disruption around being on site. So we're not seeing excess supply in most sectors and the chart we're showing you here uh, is new supply as a percentage of stock um, with the exception of data centres which we would agree um, is elevated. Broadly speaking the new supply uh, is not excessive and what we're seeing uh, in many markets is uh, rising construction costs, um, rising labour costs, uh, which all feed through to increased costs to deliver new supply. Uh, and that's all positive for existing landlord because it means it's more difficult to bring on new buildings and the rents needed to justify new construction uh, are also higher. And that supports the rents for existing landlords um, and supports the cash flow growth of the sector. So in aggregate, the supply outlook is reasonably supportive for the sector. Now, the finance structures are always critical to levered vehicles such as REITs. Uh, and generally speaking, they're in pretty good shape. The chart on the bottom left we're showing you there is debt to GAV or the loan to value ratio, which is around 30%. Uh, and the takeaway there is it's significantly below where it was uh, in the GFC. So the balance sheets are in good shape and this is enabling the REITs to be on offense. So acquiring properties, growing the portfolios, growing cash flow. Um, 
and also participating in some of the M&A we'll touch on shortly. And that's very different to, to coming out of prior corrections such as the GFC, where many were, were um, uh, looking to repair balance sheets by selling assets, therefore lowering uh, the earnings and cash flow of the vehicle. So the balance sheets are in good shape. The debt duration has extended, providing a more stable foundation uh, for these portfolios. As inflation continues to print higher in economies around the globe, Tony shares how this has impacted real rates, leaving risk assets vulnerable to the risk of faster pace rate hikes. What we have seen uh, is uh, the resurgence of inflation on a global basis, and this has driven real yields in government bond markets uh, from um, uh, outrageous levels to frankly absurd levels. We now see minus 5% real yields being offered um, in the US, um, uh, in the UK, um, uh, and uh, also in Germany. Um, uh, and uh, initially, initially, this was dismissed. Uh, that inflation was simply a transitory phenomenon. Uh, I think that argument is now dead um, and central banks are having to react to inflation, which is clearly um, uh, far more uh, sustainable. Um, we have seen it come through into wage rises in many um, uh, economies of the shortage uh, of labor. Um, we've seen commodity prices continue to go up. Those can obviously drop back, uh, but we're also going to see the largest element of the CPI uh, continue to rise, which is rent. Um, this is a lagging indicator after house prices. House prices have moved sharply higher in the last year, uh, and that will inevitably lead to rent going up. So the upward pressure on CPI will continue, and central banks are having to um, uh, tighten um, uh, and tighten much more than the market expected to deal with this inflationary pressure. Uh, now, we, we see this as, um, uh, as quite a vulnerable situation. Markets have been driven to very low yields, very high valuations by a combination of vast amounts of liquidity and exceptionally low interest rates. Um, if those interest rates are going to start to rise, if that supply of liquidity um, if the tap is going to be turned off, uh, and indeed there is the risk that it may even be reversed with banks shrinking their uh, balance sheets, I think that leaves um, risk assets uh, in a pretty vulnerable position. We asked Steve Romick if he was concerned that markets may re-rate this year due to some catalysts such as central bank action, another COVID-related event, or an unknown variable. After markets rallied hard last year, amid sporadic volatility? Well, there are always going to be sell-offs. There certainly will be larger sell-offs than what we saw in 2021. And, you know, there'll be years like the, you know, points in time like the, the first quarter of 2020. And that's always going to be the case. You know, for us, we really try and focus on what, what we own, the price we've paid for it, and what it will look like five years from now and seven years from now. And not just the market, but, you know, for the most importantly, just a starting point for the business. We have a better ability to understand what a business might do and how that might perform as, as, as a business itself over, over five to 10 years than we do what the market might do. So there's a lot more factors that will have been, you know, that will affect the market than just any one business. So we really want to focus on buying good businesses that we expect they're going to be earning more money and therefore become more valuable you know, five to 10 years hence. And the market's going to do what it's going to do along the way. There's going to be, you know, there's fear of higher rates today. 
the, you know, partly as a function of of the the economy's you know fear of people of them getting overheated and inflation, et cetera. But we've been living with easy money for a long time. We're now going to be paying the price for that easy money over the last decade plus, where governments have been borrowing money hand over fist, where rates have been very, very low, and have been and countries have been have been treasuries of, of countries have been printing money, you know, like crazy. So what how that manifests itself in, in inflation is is not going to be exact. I think the higher rates of inflation that we've seen, you know, particularly in the US in the last quarter, are probably not going to be quite as high as that, you know, because there's there's some temporary, you know, cyclical impacts in that, including supply chain issues. But there, there are other things that are more structural and the labor market, you know, is very, very tight, you know, in certain parts of the world. And so there's been lots of labor inflation as well. So where that ends up, we don't know. And how that moves along the way and how people perceive that it might unfold is what's going to create that volatility in the market that you're talking about. And that all of those things are well beyond our control to understand how they manifest themselves and when they might manifest themselves. So the how, you know, and the and the when are are very, very difficult, you know, to to ascertain. So we just don't really try. We just want to own, you know, these businesses where we believe that will alphabet be alphabet in 10 years? Will they earn more money than they earn today? Will they earn more money and will the valuation that you're paying today still justify, you know, the price, you know, to keep it within the portfolio today such that you can make a reasonable rate of return over the next five to 10 years. And that's really the thought process that we engage in as we assemble this portfolio for ourselves and you. And you. China's PBOC has signaled it will cut interest rates again this year in an effort to cushion a slowdown in GDP. Brian Coffey took us through the improving macro environment in the country and the implications this could have for Chinese equities. China is the key for us and we're becoming more positive on that. You can see here, you know, you can see the slowdown in nominal GDP, but in the blue line, which is true M1, and in the broader money measures, you can see that there's some signs of an improvement start to turn up. And indeed, when we look at the right chart on, on the uh, uh, on the banking trends, you can see that the PBOC survey loan approvals, the blue line, has certainly picked up. And the Chung Kong uh, uh, Goldman Sachs business survey has also started to improve. And, and that's not a surprise to us. We, Ian has said many times in the past that uh, in most economies, the government signaled to the market via interest rates and monetary policy what they would like to happen. And then the financial system slowly follows. In China, they tend to instruct the financial system what they would like to happen and then follow through with further signals. And that appears to be the case here. We are a bit cautious. We're turning more positive on China than we have been for some time. We think that the money growth has bottomed there even before the Everground uh, uh, default uh, that started to uh, improve. And as the evidence comes out, we will lean into that. The cautionary tone, I guess, around China is based on two uh, not insignificant issues. One is their uh, response to Omicron. They're trying to have a zero Omicron approach, and that means that they're uh, restraining travel, uh, certainly international travel. Uh, internally, travel is not too bad. But it, as they continue to focus with that, that's kind of a restraint on the economy that we, we need to be conscious of. And the other issue is the regulatory uh, clampdown that we saw last year. It seems to have moderated, and we think the focus is away from that. 
we're going to focus our portfolio on areas of uh, the economy that the government is looking to support. So clean energy, uh, 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 the common prosperity, we think that will uh, uh, help with uh, consumption plays uh, within China. The metaverse is a growing area of interest for big tech, which is highlighted by Microsoft's $70 billion purchase of Activision Blizzard, as it looks to create an early advantage in the VR world. Andy Headley discusses his views on emerging investment trends in the growing virtual world. So this is really interesting, and it's something we're watching. Obviously, Microsoft's bid for Activision recently um, it is likely to be because they, they want more stake in the metaverse. Obviously, Facebook have uh, said that they're investing a huge amount in the metaverse. And it's one that, um, it's an area that we are doing some work on and is, it's too early for us to invest other than through major companies like Meta and, and Microsoft. Um, but I can understand it in a way, and, and, and in a way when you think about it, it means that things like NFTs are probably or possibly not as crazy as I originally thought because there are a large cohort of society who are young, uh, can't afford to get on the housing ladder or the property ladder, living typically in rented accommodation that is small, and they are the ones who very possibly will want to spend a lot of time in the metaverse. So in the metaverse, instead of living in a dingy flat in the middle of, let's say, Manchester, they could own a mansion in the metaverse, you know, right in the middle, and, you know, they're going to interact with other people. And, and so, so this idea that historically people have, uh, you know, in capitalist societies, People have generally always wanted more. So if you ask people if they like a nicer house, most people would say yes. If they want a nicer car, most people would say yes. But but maybe those displays of wealth in the future, may, maybe they're um, displays of wealth in the metaverse and that you end up living your life through virtual reality headsets or something similar in the metaverse. And, and so I can kind of understand it um, at its basic level. I think there's a long way to go. So I think it's one of these things that, that we will have plenty of time to see uh, how it shapes up and if there are, you know, good business models within the metaverse that, that will be cash generative. And I suspect if there are, they will be advertising related somehow. You know, so we've seen obviously Facebook um, and Google, probably the two best business models that have been created as a consequence of the Internet in the 1990s and 2000s. Those two business models are both advertising related and, and it's likely that anything in the metaverse that, that ends up being a, a, a very successful business model would again be advertising related. So we're keeping our eyes open. We're trying to learn about the metaverse, but it's not something that we're likely to invest in. And it, it strikes me that it, if it follows the shape of other, um, I guess, fads, then what we'll see, we'll, we will see a massive equity market bubble in metaverse companies and then a crash. And then after that, the ones that actually uh, have a viable and potentially successful business model will then take off. But, but it's likely that we'll have some sort of uh, up and down first if we follow things like the Internet or um, other, other areas that have done similar. All the way back to railroads in the uh, you know, uh, 19, uh, early 20th century. Jeremy Lang avoided banking stocks in his portfolio up until March last year due to behavioural concerns with management teams in the industry. As the sector emerges from its lost decade, 
following the financial crisis. Jeremy explains more about an interesting European banking stock, which he has added to his portfolio. We've got a few banks in the um, in the portfolio. Um, uh, we introduced uh, our banking exposure uh, um, uh, uh, sort of about um, uh, around March, April of last year, having been very uh, skeptical about the banking sector uh, because of the um, the problems of the financial crisis and and, and the risks that sort of created. Uh, I think in, in many ways. There's an interesting parallel between banking and 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 the tech sector, and the the banking sector almost had its own sort of TMT sort of boom bust kind of cycle. Uh, as we all know, the last financial crisis was sort of triggered by um, uh, aggressive growth um, um, and risky behaviour by banks, um, and then they've had their. Uh, sort of equivalent of the lost decade, um, uh, where um, uh, they've had to retrench as an industry. Uh, a lot of the reckless and risky CEO behaviour, uh, which sort of drove a lot of the problems, uh, has been sort of squeezed out of the system. Um, and uh, the whole industry is sort of, in, in a simple way, I think, being de-risked. Um, and so it presented, I think, quite an interesting op- opportunity in that sort of long-term behavioural cycles uh, that, that intrigue us. So uh, uh, we went hunting for what we felt were some interesting banks um, um, at the start of last year, and uh, and we found a few very interesting ones uh, scattered around the world. Most of them actually are more kind of growth orientated, and and the, and the uh, one in particular, uh, um, a New York-based bank called Signature Bank. I think sort of typifies uh, uh, what the kind of business that can thrive against this this sort of interesting background. Uh, Signature Bank is, a, in many ways, a very old-fashioned bank, uh, and then it pl- places um, a lot of emphasis on strong customer relationships and face-to-face customer relationships as well. And they have a, a very strong franchise amongst the legal profession in New York, uh, but also they're a relatively modern bank um, in that they've put in. Uh, um, then they're, they're not hampered by old uh, sort of slightly rubbish. Um, IT systems, so they've got um, they've sort of embraced technology as well, and so the combination of those two led to a very unusual pattern of behaviour during those if like that crisis, that lost decade, because um, they found it um, relatively easy to keep growing loan growth uh, and staying profitable, uh, and didn't and weren't hampered by many of the issues that um, uh, uh, their competition have. So it's a very unusual looking uh, business in a if you like a kind of tricky anxiety inducing um, uh, industry, which I I think is sort of emerging into potentially a more interesting environment. You can access more information about all the fund manager workshops at deadgroupinvestments.com, YouTube, or through our podcast channels on all major platforms. This has been your Ned Group Investments quarterly briefing. Make sure to check back at the end of April for our next edition.